This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Maritime Developments Limited, who wish to dedicate it to all vessel owners. As marine engineering specialists of over 20 years, MDL have the tools, the track record and the know-how to keep your deck equipment safely operational even as it clocks up the hours. From yearly inspections and regular maintenance to complete overhauls and upgrades, MDL's in-house skill set can help you tick off your maintenance checklist during your docking schedule. And for more bespoke requirements, trust MDL's design and engineering team to deliver a complete solution tailored to your project goals. Please visit their website, maritimedevelopments.com, for more information. Hello and welcome along to episode 8 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott and joining me as always, it's Graham Steele and Gavin Baxter. How are we doing guys? Very well, thank you. I think it's worth saying that Martin Stone did an impeccable job last week. Um, listenership figures represent that people are happy and I'm sure that some people would rather Martin was in fact a permanent transfer, but uh, I have an ironclad contract with this podcast, so moving me on is about as hard as moving Matty Kennedy off the wage bill Aberdeen. So it's a relatively sedate episode for us this week uh, with no men's match for the Dons to review from the weekend past um, with only one match to look ahead to this weekend. We decided we'd take a deep dive into everybody's favourite conspiracy. Nope, it's not the lone shooter on the hill or the moon landings. We're going to look at the aberdeen Atlantic United partnership as we rapidly approach the two-year anniversary of the deal. We're also going to be joined by Doug Roberson from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he'll attempt to give us the Atlantic United view on the link-up, and we'll find out how we, Ronnie Hernandez, is getting on in the deep south of the United States. So, let's get going on this one. 25th of November, 2019, 10.30am. The old inbox lights up with an announcement from Aberdeen that we're entering into a quote, strategic partnership with Major League Soccer Outfit Atlanta United. Now, this news followed just one day after the announcement that Stuart Mill was hanging up his wig and handing the reins over to Dave Cormack. And the initial press release indicated that AMB Sports and Entertainment, that's the parent company of Atlanta United, were investing £2 million into AFC as part of a wider package of investment. And at the same time, Darren Eels, the president of Atlanta United, was appointed as a non-executive director of Aberdeen Football Club. A couple of days later, a number of shares equating about £2.25 million in value were allotted, presumably, to AMB Sports and Entertainment. You don't get that level of information on Companies House, unfortunately, but it's probably a fair assessment to make. Now, the press release at the time highlighted that the link-up was going to be aimed at delivering economies of scale by aligning both clubs on key football and business operation best practice, which would include a shared agreement on worldwide player identification, assessment, recruitment, and development. The idea being that we could benefit from Atlanta United's South American scouting network and they could benefit from our extensive European scouting network. The definition of extensive being English League One. Now, the press release went on further to state that the collaboration was not just about the on-pitch operations, but there were going to be, again, inverted commas, mutually beneficial commercial synergies with a specific focus being put on match the experience, delivery of sponsorships and other commercial initiatives to increase revenues on both sides. 
another key area of collaboration was expected to be in terms of uh, getting learnings from Atlanta on their development of their training facilities and their transition to the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. And even poor Derek McInnes was dragged in for a soundbite, claiming that he was, quote, encouraged by Atlanta's desire to work with us and that this would help us develop our player recruitment strategies by tapping into markets we otherwise wouldn't look at. So all in all, sounded pretty positive if you can park the management talk guys can you remember what your initial thoughts were this when it when it came to fruition the honest answer is no not really it was two years ago and i struggled to remember what i did at the weekend but what i do recall a lot of the chat you've mentioned it there around the match the experience uh, is probably what i remember more now i think a couple of episodes ago when we were talking about Pataudry, i was saying the match the experience for me is meet my pals for a couple of drinks, going to watch Aberdeen, hopefully three points. That's the experience for me. But I was a little bit intrigued by, does this mean we would maybe, I don't know if this is good English, Americanize the match the experience a little bit more? You know, sporting events in America are maybe more family orientated, more of a, a day out kind of approach. And that's something that I was interested in, whether we would try and encourage people to spend a bit longer at Pataudry. Obviously, they want your money, but that's fine if they're offering something. That's never really happened, although I suppose the sort of underlining or underlying caveat for all of this is this little thing called COVID. It's kind of probably put a span in the works for anything over the last 15, 16 months, wherever it is in terms of socialising, etc. So I focused in on that piece and then I thought, well, we might get players from the MLS for what it's worth. I don't think the quality is that bad. And I was thinking maybe okay, we might, you know, we, we might loan some guys out or send them over for training um, and they can they can learn a little bit about how, how they approach it over there. So I wouldn't say I was over the moon. I was probably more curious. And to be perfectly honest, I was curious as to why they, why Atlanta picked us. You know, ignoring, I guess, we've got Dave Cormack. I guess that's an obvious link. But other than that, I didn't really see any obvious parallels between the two clubs. My recollections of it, um, I think, was a certain level of excitement about the um, the chat regarding the opportunity this would provide for us to be scouting in different markets and to be able to take players, like still says, from Atlanta um, to to Aberdeen and via Atlanta's work um, in South America, Central America, you know, bring a, a different caliber of player to Aberdeen. There's various reasons why that's become more difficult, COVID being one thing, Brexit being another thing. It was definitely an intriguing move for me, and it was exciting. As time has gone on, I'm not quite sure it's paid off for us in any significant way, bar the um, the investment from Atlanta. Yeah, and I think at the time, I mean, I remember when it was all announced, there was a lot of people getting very, very excited about the fact that Arthur Blank, the guy who ultimately owns Atlanta United. Uh, he, owns, he owns the Atlanta Falcons as well in the NFL. He is a, a squillionaire, to put it mildly, the, the founder of Home Depot, I think it is, over in the States. And I think there was a lot of people getting very excited about the prospect of Arthur Blank kind of deciding to bankroll us a little bit with a view to try to break the, 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 the dominance of the Premier League here in Scotland, certainly by Celtic at that period in time. And obviously we, we seem to have reverted back to a, a two-horse race again at the moment, unfortunately. And I think there was a lot of people very excited about that. But I, I think when you read through the initial press release, that was never really going to be something that was 
going to be coming to the fore. We were not going to suddenly become a, a plaything for a, a billionaire to, to have a bit of fun with. I was probably the same as Gavin though as well. I was kind of encouraged by the prospect of us getting to tap in, I think, to the scouting network that Atlanta were, were going to bring to the table, certainly when it came to South American, Central American type players, even American players. I mean, the, the game in America has also moved on leaps and bounds in recent years. And there's there's some really good players out there that could absolutely do a job do a job for Aberdeen. I guess that was always going to be tempered a little bit by the, the people in charge of the club at the time and whether they'd actually want to even consider bringing players from from those types of leagues into the club and whether they would use them effectively or not. But I thought it was an, I thought it was an intriguing uh, an intriguing move at the time. And I guess it's kind of hard right now for us to really see, Gav, you've, you've picked up on it with Brexit, with COVID, etc. It's been very difficult for us to actually see any real fruit out of the relationship so far. Should the warning signs have possibly been there though for us with John Gallagher? Because he'd been at the club for a few months by the time this deal even went through before it was even talked about. And my concern initially at the time we heard about this was going to be, are we going to be landed with players who are sent here for experience? But are they actually going to be good enough to, to break it into our first team? Well, so far, um, on the basis of John Gallagher and his um, successor, Jack Burr, then the answer has to be a resounding no. I I see. I actually get where you're going with that. And I think the two points I'd like to make is one on the deal itself. It was it was something different. And we I felt like as a club, we've not really been going anywhere for a number of years. I know we had the League Cup success, which thoroughly enjoyed. But in general, we're just stuck in this sort of quagmire of we're a little bit better than the rest, but we're not quite good enough. So it was interesting that they tried something different. On the player piece, again, I feel or I felt over the last few years, a lot of the signings were kind of generic guys that had been here before or guys that, you know, kicked about in England. So, okay, maybe John Gallagher didn't work out, but at least it was something different. I feel the club had to take a different approach. I mean, it can't just be the three of us that were going to matches and saying, well, this isn't particularly great. Or every time we sign someone, you think, well, there's a surprise. Uh, He's played in England He's, he's had a busted knee. What a surprise, he ended up at Aberdeen. So I, I absolutely take your point. So far, I don't think we can all be jumping on down saying this is a great success, but directionally, it does feel like we need to be thinking outside the box here. It's not really something I'm aware of that any other clubs in Scotland have. So I had hoped it might give us a competitive advantage, and it might still, the last couple of years, have been an odd period worldwide, so the, the deal might actually bear fruit. I guess, yeah, I mean, this is probably where a source of major scepticism comes from, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in greater detail in a moment. But, you know, the Ronnie Hernandez transfer and subsequent loan to Atlanta, you look at that and think, there's a guy that didn't look bad, we didn't look great. He's then gone and looked to Atlanta, been in and out of the team at right back and left back. doesn't quite seem to make sense that we're loaning a guy to Atlanta and then bringing their third or fourth choice right back to Aberdeen. I don't quite see what the uh, the benefit there for ourselves would be. The Ronald Hernandez deal is the one that almost casts a shadow over the entire link-up, I think, for most Aberdeen fans as it stands. Put the Ronald Hernandez part to one side for a moment. For me, in principle, I, I'm not... I, I kind of sit on the fence with this. Am I opposed to the idea of us identifying players jointly with Atlanta, us perhaps taking them in for a season, 18 months, whatever, to get more experience playing at a different in a different league. 
but ultimately their final destination is always going to be Atlanta. Am I for or against that? I'm not too sure because there's part of me goes, I don't want us to be used as some sort of like feeder club like that. I think we're a club with a proud enough history and a successful enough history to not be treated like that. But then at the same time, in the kind of new world, this might be a way for us to actually get the benefit of some players who would be otherwise out with our price range potentially. And we get the benefit of them for 12, 18 months, whatever it might be, and we pass them off. But then maybe hopefully we get another one coming through the door very quickly thereafter. So I, I'm in kind of two minds about that sort of model. I don't know what your guys' view on that is. I completely agree. Obviously, we're all proud Aberdeen fans. The club has a history and a prestige. But the reality is the game's different these days. There are emerging markets. And I, I keep going back to the point, what have we actually accomplished over the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years? You know, I don't think... I think most people would agree we've not accomplished what we would expect or what we would want. So trying something different to me is actually probably the way to go. And if that means we are the, I'm using the, the brackets here, the weaker partner in that, and that means we get someone for a year, 18 months. But if that actually can improve the squad and we get some tangible out of that, i.e. we win something, I would be quite content with that. Yeah, I think it's, as you say, the, we've got we've got the history on our side. I think Atlanta United are a pretty new MLS team. I think I think they're only five or six years old, really, in reality. Which is crazy because I, th- I think they have actually won the MLS. When you think about that. Um, but yeah, and we might have the history, but you know the money, the power. Um, it's all there with Atlanta in football manager terms. We are the we are the feeder club in this relationship, which I guess is another thing people might uh, might struggle to uh, struggle to accept. Yeah, completely agree. And I, I think let's let's look at the Ronald Hardana's deal right now. I mean, everyone's got their opinion on it. Um, if we're all completely honest, it comes completely out of left field as far as Aberdeen are concerned, especially under the previous manager. For us to sign a Venezuelan, uh, a, a young Venezuelan internationalist from the Norwegian league, uh, uh, not a league that we had a, a, a track record of plundering in the past. We pay the guts of a million pounds for him. I think it was 850 grand. So one of the more significant transfer fees we've put out in the last 20, 25 years. And we give the guy a four and a half year deal. So all of these things are completely contrary to what was going on at the club at that time. I think we would all agree with that. Particularly given at that time, Shea Logan was still very much first choice right back at Aberdeen. And that's a very fair point as well, actually. I completely forgot yeah, about that. That's exactly what I was going to say. Ignoring the the sum of money that may or may not have been involved, the position that the player plays in wasn't something that we were screaming out for. So on the face of it, it's not a logical deal. I mean, maybe we could sit back and say that we could see a regression with Shea Logan, but I think you could still tell he was very much a favourite of Derek McInnes at that time. Absolutely. And I'm not so sure it took Ronnie Hernandez, 850k from Norway, to solve the problem of an ageing Shea Logan personally, that, that no, none of that makes me think, yeah, you're right, we were looking to the future. That's just not the kind of deal we do. Yeah, and then Hernandez comes in, plays, I think, 45 minutes in a home debut against St. Johnston, gets hooked, as far as I can recall. We don't really see him ever again until the start of the 2020 season, I guess, at that point, where he starts against Rangers. Um, and I thought on that day he did okay. I mean, it was a team that didn't really perform particularly well on the day I felt Hernandez did, did all right and then he starts the game the following day the following week I think it's at Johnston and again gets hooked after 45 minutes and that is the last we see of Ronald Hernandez and at that point I mean when he was signed 
there was already the rumor the rumor mill going and people you know theorizing that Hernandez was only here on a temporary basis really we'd, we'd signed him for for Atlanta United ultimately he would end up going there etc 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 and that wasn't that that perception wasn't kind of helped when I think it was three days after the transfer of Hernandez goes through there's a loan from a related party in inverted commas made of a million pounds to the club now Dave Cormack has since come out and said that it was it was he that personally lent that money to the club now we can take that as word or or you can choose to take a different view on that I guess but it all looks a little bit murky doesn't it at that particular point this is then heightened by the fact that the first opportunity afterwards Hernandez is sent to Atlanta on loan we don't have any of the relevant personnel here to discuss this so obviously what we're doing is pure speculation but like you say it felt immediately like this was a just a transfer that had been taken to just um I don't know, get Ronnie Hernandez into the system, so to speak, and then it was inevitable that he would go on loan or transferred to Atlanta. There was all kinds of talk about, about whether his family were able to come from Venezuela, who they didn't. Uh, I don't know if that was because they couldn't or or what was going on there, which I'm sure made things difficult for him as well, being in being in Aberdeen. But um, yeah, it's like you say, it's just it was all very cloak and daggers and just you know very suspicious like everyone's got perfectly legitimate uh reason to be suspicious of what was going on with that transfer given the lack of gameplay and his what felt like inevitable um destination yeah i think you're absolutely right the time he arrived at the club and then covid the world basically shut down i think it was probably a pretty unpleasant time for him and his family so there are mitigating maybe circumstances to how he played or how likely played or whatever but the fact that he got loaned to Atlanta, I don't really believe in coincidences. In my opinion, there's something behind there in terms of a bigger plan, and it obviously changed the timing with everything that went on, but it's pretty obvious to me that uh, that was the end game, and maybe just COVID accelerated that, and he didn't get the experience or the yeah, the experience that Atlanta hoped he would get by getting a run in the Aberdeen team, which also begs the question of, is there pressure or an obligation to play him? Had he, you know, had had things been different and COVID had never happened and he'd been here and his family was here, etc., would would there have been a bit of pressure to actually play him in the team regardless of form? And that plays into, you know, the future um, of this relationship, that if it is in fact a case that Aberdeen is being used as a sort of training, breeding ground for Atlanta, then, yeah, are we under pressure to play players that otherwise, you know, perhaps are not delivering, you know? It's it's the same kind of deal as being a feeder club for a team in the Premiership who sends you a player on loan. They're not doing it, but you've just got to do it. I mean, there was, there was speculation over Danny Ward about how much we had to contribute to his wages if we didn't play him, you know? And that's, if they're not delivering, that's clearly not a beneficial thing for Aberdeen. And that would have been very interesting, I think, to have seen how the relationship between the, the previous manager and the chairman would have developed if that had kind of come to fruition where he was being told you have to play Hernandez when McInnes, I think it's probably fair to say, didn't rate him, didn't probably, I don't think he wanted him. I think no matter what the press releases at the time said about how we'd been tracking him for ages and he was never a Derek McInnes type player. I think we would all agree on that. It would have been very interesting to see what that dynamic looked like if he'd been forced to play him. Especially because McInnes was so loyal to players that he brought in. I mean, you think of, you know, Kenny McLean, you know, didn't have the greatest six months, but, you know, McInnes always stuck with him. Uh, Hernandez, it felt like, you know, okay, you're here, 
the club have put out quite a lot of money for you, so I'll give you a shot. And then it was, you know, like I said, it was 45 minutes and it was like, no, nah, no, nah, not for me. What I would say in that situation is I would side with the manager in the structure we had at the time. That the manager was picking the, you know, his players, it was his transfer target, so that's his job. If someone's decided to parachute someone into the squad and the manager doesn't like them, I would have sided with McInnes if, if it had you know, all boiled over and it came out that it wasn't his player and he was being obliged to, to play him, I'd have been on his side. I think the structure we're moving to is maybe slightly different, where there is maybe more of a, a strategic approach to signings. We will get someone in that can work with the players we've you know we've got in the, the quote-unquote philosophy we're after. But at the time, I think you're absolutely right. McInnes obviously towed the party line, as you would do, but... Um, it would be. I'd love to have his ear for five ten minutes and get the lowdown on what actually happened. Yeah, and the Hernandez deal is even more interesting because of the fact that, well, a we've only loaned him to Atlanta United. He he wasn't sold to them, which I think is what everyone expected. So there's a very real chance that Ronnie Hernandez arrives back in Aberdeen in January when his loan is up because, by all accounts, he's not playing regularly for Atlanta United. He's in and out of the team. He's playing at left back sometimes because that's the only place they can slot him in. Everything I've read online is is not entirely favourable about his performances in Atlanta. For my money, I would expect he'll be coming back to Aberdeen. Now, whether he actually really does come back, whether we just decide to punt him to somebody else um, in the January transfer window, who knows? But that's an interesting piece for us here because presumably if we sell him, he's getting sold at a loss. We're not going to recoup the money we've paid for him. Yeah, it would be hard to believe, but I'm just thinking out loud, he's on, or what we signed him to, a four and a half year deal. So he's got the reasonable contract left to run. Now, obviously, we've got a couple of young lads in playing in defence, but will they be around for, you know, for longer? Maybe there is a slot opens up for Hernandez. I mean, for what it's worth, I wouldn't write him off at this point. The whole deal seems a little bit fishy, and the little glimpses we saw of him, in my opinion, wasn't enough to decide if he's good, bad, or indifferent, or if he's capable of playing for Aberdeen. But it is an interesting angle to look at. You've got a couple of young prospects who are quite highly rated and you've got a guy that might come back and actually there might be a vacancy for him. Yeah, I mean, so his contract runs till 2024, I think. But when is he actually due back from Atlanta? I think he's due back in January. I think his, his loan is up in January. So, I mean, I've heard, seen some discussion about this and people seemingly being quite excited, but I can say myself, I would never in a million years drop Calvin Ramsey for Ronnie Hernandez. Uh, not at the moment. I think the only thing I would say about that is if Calvin Ramsey continues with his rate of progression, we'll be fighting off suitors with a shitty stick come January. I guess the thing is there, we, you know, we're recording this after the transfer window is shut and you know, we've seen with Lewis Ferguson and the club are not going to bend over for for any amount of money. So it's, yeah, I think Ramsey's signed up for, signed a new deal at the end of the end of last season. So he's presumably signed up for an extended period. So yeah, again, once again, the uh, you know the power is in our hands in that one. That's probably enough about Ronald Hernandez right now because I think it's just such an odd set of circumstances. And for me, I would personally have just rather the club kind of came out and maybe were honest, I guess, about it to an extent around you know maybe was Hernandez actually signed as a as a as a player, a project player for Atlanta in the long term? Was that the plan? I think most people would probably accept that. That if we're told the truth, people would accept that. We might not like it, but at least we'd understand it. And just to touch on the Hernandez thing one last time, I think as well, it really has been even heightened, I guess, even worse this season when we started the campaign with Calvin Ramsey and 
Jack Gurr as our choices at right back. So you're talking then about having a guy who's been released by Atlanta United because he's not good enough to play for them is brought in as our backup fullback where we've actually gone and loaned our fullback who we've paid 850 grand for to Atlanta United. That just also seems really odd. And I know there's a lot of stuff in there about personal circumstances and everything. And, and I think his family found it very difficult to make their way to Aberdeen with COVID, etc. So th- that needs to be taken into account. But the whole thing just looks really odd. But if we if we look back at that initial press release that came out from the, the Dons at the time the, 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 the link-up was announced, they talked very definitively around you know particular things that you were effectively going to be able to ma- measure this particular relationship by. You know, they talked about the alignment of player identification, assessment, recruitment, development. I think it's fair to say we've seen deadly squat on that front from Atlanta United to us. And, you know, without think, without knowing immediately all of the uh, recruitment that Atlanta have taken from Scotland, I don't think they've really seen any benefit from that either. Well, they absolutely haven't because our sole rec- um, recommendation to them was Jake Mulraney. So and okay, COVID has has probably played a part in that. There's not been the opportunity for perhaps players to be swapped or all that kind of good stuff. But certainly, there's been very little on that. I know there was some chat about Jack McKenzie was potentially going to go to Atlanta uh, last season. I think for some development opportunities, and there's that obviously didn't happen because of COVID. So fair enough. Maybe that's one thing you can kind of you, you can put to one side for the time being. They also talked about Graham. You touched on this earlier on about match the experience kind of lessons learned and, and opportunities to kind of develop that now i think anyone that sees the footage of um <clears throat> the mercedes-benz stadium and sees and anyone that's ever been to a sporting event in the u.s knows how over the top it is and how family orientated it can be and all that kind of good stuff and i think maybe in this area we have actually seen some improvements as far as this side of things go well you know we're just off the back of our kind of homecoming game um with ross county and i think i said you know on our on our twitter that you know the one thing you can't level at the club is it's not trying things you know um you know for example like you know having iona fife singing uh northern lights or the kind of new paintwork that's gone around to the merklin stand and you know but yeah i think we can probably still agree that there's probably still more to come um to make Patodre a more enjoyable experience out with the out with the uh out with the football and one thing could maybe be if they could get their ticket thing sorted in the merklin stand so i'd have to stand outside for five minutes like an idiot all i can say is I've got in every time, so there might be an element of user error. But I absolutely <laughs> agree. The the Red Shed initiative, for example, is is good and that's a different direction from the club that feels like they've been listening to what people or they've identified themselves that maybe getting a group of like-minded individuals in one stand, because they all they all exist across Padre, but they tended to be maybe in the upper deck of Rich Donald or Pocket the stand. You know, they weren't all together to maybe try and generate that atmosphere. So you're right, bits and pieces of it have improved, or, or I took from the press release, not that we were going to go full-blown American Day out for the tailgate party, but I thought we were going to maybe go more down the route of days out, family activities. And to me, you've kind of got the facilities. I mean, the concourse in the Rich Donald, for example, you can have set up with, I don't know, bits and pieces going on. So maybe maybe it's just timing, and obviously we are only just back to football, so maybe these initiatives will appear over the season. But yeah, so far, I'm not picking too much out of that release that I could actually say, yeah, that's there's a tangible piece of, yeah, I can see something that's happened. Yeah, just talking, actually, you, you kind of laughed there about the tailgating idea and all that kind of good stuff, but um, Martin Stone's interview with Dave Cormack and Robix um, from a couple of weeks ago, 
and I'd encourage more people to go and check out as well if you get the opportunity to. I know we plugged it during last week's episode, but it's, it's, it's good to do it again just now. Yeah, so there was talk about them putting like pop-up bars and marquees and stuff down at the old cricket ground pitches next to, you know, out, out the back of the um, out the Beach Leisure Centre uh, at the base of Brothill. And using that as a base, I think they were kind of taking some inspiration as well from the Burnley away game a couple of seasons ago. That that could be an area where you could have people congregating. It's within, you know, two minutes walking distance of the stadium. But it would be a way of getting around, I guess, like the kind of alcohol restrictions you have at the actual stadium at the moment. You could have whatever you want there. And again, you could cater for a number of different types of fans within that sort of facility as well. You could have families, you could have folk like ourselves just wanting to go for a beer and have a bit of a laugh and all that kind of stuff. And so, so there is definitely, I think, some ideas coming from, from that side of things. I think Dave Cormack and Robux as well, they, they do deserve some credit around just at least trying to freshen up the look of Pataudry. Um, for, for too many years, Pataudry's just been left to rot um as we pursue multiple different stadium opportunities without ever actually taking the time to look after the place that we currently call home and a lot of this is you know it's um cosmetic you know painting up the red shed sticking up those like um the the, the banners outside the main stand and everything like that but it's all little things that actually help just to to to, to create a bit of an atmosphere around the stadium and to 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 give the place a bit of character so they do deserve some credit i think on on that side but you're right, on, in terms of the rest of the kind of metrics you'd look at, there's kind of very little that you can really, you know, you can point to to say this is definitely something that that, that has been a success so far. But in saying that, it is still early days at the moment. And I, and I wonder if maybe the, the, there is some thinking at the club to maybe think about going a bit further with this idea as well. You know, and again, I'll, I'll hark back to the conversation that Martin Stone had with, with Dave Cormack and Rob Wicks, where they pointed at the Nordishland model, where... Nordsland have, have currently set up a, 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 I think it's like a, a football academy in Ghana or they've set up a link up with one of the clubs in Ghana and now they're starting to get some players come through that that pathway from Ghana to Denmark and I think they've just sold a lad for like 20 million euros or something off the back of that and to me that seems like a really sensible idea that we should be you know exploring as well as looking and we talked about last week after the um the Carabag game we need to be starting to shop in different markets from everybody else because at the moment you saw on transfer deadline day, you know, everyone jokes about us and Hibs looking for the same players. But the reason is we're shopping in the same market, effectively. We're both shopping in and around that area, looking to pick up the best players in Scotland where we can, picking up players from the from, from down south. That's going to continue until such point as we start thinking about doing something different. Yeah, I would also, and I absolutely am stereotyping here, we would generally, you know, the Carabag game was a good example. We were saying, well, technically, they're much better getting players from a different market, different experiences, different coaching. You know, if we're just in the same market all the time and then we're wondering why it's the same flaws and deficiencies every time, well, maybe there's a reason for that. You're you're not picking up players that have what you you need or want. They do exist. And they exist, in my opinion, in the sort of budget range we've got. And I think you're absolutely right. Looking at something out, outside the box, left field, whatever you call it, that your rivals aren't doing, has to be a good thing. And if, if you know, if Norseland really have done something like that, then I don't know a great deal about them, but I'm just thinking off the top of my head, it's not like there's some sort of super club like Man City that can chuck money at a feeder club or an academy. If they can do it, then I don't see why we can't be doing it. There, I guess, would be worth drawing the comparison with um, Norwich City as well. Because, you know, I mean, they haven't, they maybe not cracked it in the Premiership yet, but in terms of the Championship, they've gone about recruiting in different markets because they just simply don't have the money to compete with their with their um with their rival teams 
So yeah, they're smarter and they're more aggressive and they're faster in different markets. And like from that, you can get players and Martin Stone touched on this as well. You look in different markets, you can get players who are probably better than the guys we're looking at for cheaper. And these guys will stand out more. And so in turn, you can then go on and make profit out of them. It's it's kind of it seems like a no brainer, and hopefully that is something the club is uh, is going to actually pursue from now on. And for me, it just seems like a natural extension, a little bit of what Atlanta are doing. Well, that's like it should be a joint approach between ourselves and Atlanta. I think you know we were talking there, but this is not something we necessarily as a club need to be throwing big money at. But between ourselves and Atlanta, you could throw some cash at some of this, some of these initiatives out with not just Europe. You know, looking at places like Africa, South America, Central America the far east now there are some complications and they're obviously with regards to work permits and, and, and immigration and all that kind of good stuff but we need to be thinking outside the box as far as this type of thing goes so yeah what do we think guys early days still still needs a bit more time to kind of be judged where this atlanta united partnership is actually going i think for me well i was just thinking there is that i think now the partnership has truly started in this summer with now that we have all the components in place and i'm mainly referring to a willing head coach and that's not a slight on McInnes because that's not what he signed up for but now you know we've got a guy in Stephen Glass who knows the culture in America knows Atlanta United knows the options going forward uh, provided that Stephen Glass uh, is a successful manager at Aberdeen I think now we can actually start to uh, see the benefits but I think like we've kind of alluded to I think we just want some transparency over what the exact nature of this uh, link up is yeah I would absolutely agree with that the two years have gone by Circumstances have made it in a lot of cases such that we can't really get going. But you're right, Stephen Glass has signed up, uh, obviously knowing what this relationship is all about. He, he understands culture over there. So you're right, we do have someone who's presumably willing to look at players from other markets or possibly be dictated to in terms of these are the, the targets. Pick, you know, pick what you like. Uh, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm optimistic, actually. And what I will say is I know we've, Maybe had a slightly negative view of this to date. You know, Dave Cormack from Wicks have been, generally speaking, quite open. It's difficult for them to tell you exactly what you want to hear. And sometimes even if they do tell you the truth, it might not be what you want to hear. But I think we're we're set up now to hopefully take this forward. And hopefully Atlanta uh, feel the same way as well. And they can look at it and think, right, we've, you know, we're, we're hopefully embarking upon a new era in terms of the management and the squad they can start to look at us again and maybe we can just reinvigorate the whole process. Just please don't send us Jake Mulraney. Absolutely agree on that. They may have unbookable midfielders. We don't know about that, Graham. We'll find out later. So that's our take on all things Atlanta United and Aberdeen. But to get the perspective from stateside, we spoke to Doug Roberson, who's the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's chief Atlanta United correspondent, to see what he had to say. Hello, Doug. Welcome along to the ABZ Football Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. No, and listen, Doug, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, as we discussed, we're looking to take a bit of a deep dive into the, the partnership between Aberdeen and Atlanta United, which is rapidly approaching its two-year anniversary. And, and we're hoping, I guess, that you can maybe help shed some perspective on things from the Atlanta side of the deal. So I guess, I guess the first thing, it's an obvious question to ask is, but... Can you remember kind of where you first heard about the partnership? Yeah, it was uh, two years ago. I was talking with uh, someone with Atlanta United, and they told me that this was coming up. And um, so obviously I had a whole bunch of questions. 
um, and then got the information from uh, another person and wrote the story. And it, it was an intriguing kind of partnership because it's unlike, I think, anything else between any other MLS club and the other team. There are a lot of sister club kind of things or, or shared ownership, majority ownership, but nothing in which one club only has, what is it, a 10% stake? I think Atlanta United stake in Aberdeen, something like that. Um, such a small stake in another club, uh, but through which they share a lot of ideas and, and best practices. What was your initial reaction when you uh, you heard about this deal? And what was the general reaction like amongst the Atlanta United fan base? Uh, Mara, I was curious. Um, again, because it's so unique, uh, I, I envisioned probably a lot more player sharing uh, than has been so far. Uh, the reaction from Atlanta United supporters, you know, there really hasn't been much of one. It's been kind of tepid, I think, because there's been so few uh, comings and goings between the clubs. John Gallagher was alone. Uh, Gurr, I think, was uh, they released him, and then Aberdeen picked him up. But obviously, Stephen Glass knew about him from from his time here in Atlanta. And other than that, we don't get. We just now started getting uh, Scottish football on uh, TV down here on main on. Uh, like ESPN Plus, I think it is, here. So now people can actually watch the games, which they couldn't do uh, the previous two seasons. So I think that might generate some more interest uh, in Aberdeen and in the premiership there. Okay, I guess we'll, we'll come on to maybe some of that in a, in, in a little bit of time, but you kind of touched on it there, Doug. Obviously, when the link-up was first announced, it was clear that um, AMB, Sport and Entertainment, who are the the ultimate parent company, I guess, of Atlanta United, they invested around uh, about £2 million um, into Aberdeen Football Club. And Darren Eels was appointed as a non-executive director of the Aberdeen Football Club board as well. And then a couple of days later, um, a number of shares in Aberdeen Football Club were, were distributed around £2.5 million worth of shares, you know, is effectively very close to the value that AMB put in. So it's a reasonable assumption to make that those shares were issued to A and B. We don't get that level of information in the accounts that we can see, but it's a if you're putting two and two together, I don't think that's a million miles off. Now, as you kind of touched on earlier on, is you know as far as we're aware, there's absolutely no reciprocal arrangement where Aberdeen have got a place or a say on the board of Atlanta United, and that that makes sense because Aberdeen haven't invested anything in Atlanta. But is it fair to say, and you kind of touched on it a minute ago, that do Atlanta view the link up as being not necessarily one of like a pure partnership, but more that they are looking to try and create like a satellite feeder club and that they are absolutely the kind of more senior member of the, the partnership, so to speak? Uh, no, I, I don't, I don't think that's uh, accurate. Um, I don't know how they view it to be honest with you, but I don't think they view it that way. There's just, there hasn't been enough transactions between the two clubs. I think to have a, a clear idea of what it is they want from the relationship. I know that they both want to take advantage of each other's scouting networks. Uh, but again, it's only two years old, so there hasn't been a lot of that either. But, you know, Ronald Hernandez and Jake Mulraney, I think were probably uh, beneficiaries of Aberdeen scouting for Atlanta United. Those, those are two players now. Uh, and I don't know how Aberdeen might have benefited from Atlanta United scouting so far, other than with Gurr. Just kind of following on for that, I was just wondering, it's a sort of speculative question, and you're right, not much has happened um, over the last couple of years since the deal was announced, but just wondering if you had any views as to how sort of bought into the, the vision of the link-up Arthur Blank is and ultimately those in charge of Atlanta. 
Arthur Blank's interest in the partnership? Is that what you're asking? Or, or how how bought into the vision of this arrangement he is? So basically, do the do the chiefs of Atlanta really buy into this? Yeah, I believe so. Arthur Blank, uh, Atlanta United's owner, uh, one of the co-founders of Home Depot. For your listeners, if they don't know who he is, uh, community interaction, community values, uh, community charity is something that he is very much behind in Atlanta. Um, he just announced yesterday this would be. Uh, August 31st, donating a million dollars to the New Orleans Foundation for hurricane victims. For example, there's a new wing of a children's hospital, our new children's hospital being built with his donations. I know Aberdeen Football Club is very, very invested in its community through through different mechanisms and was awarded a, a huge uh, honor by UEFA, I believe it was, for its work. So in that regard, I think Arthur Blank has a very keen interest in the partnership between the two. As for the actual football things, I don't know how much how much of an interest he has in that. I think he trusts Darren Eels to do what he thinks is best as president of Atlanta United to just make sure that uh, the Atlanta United brand uh, continues to be uh, held in esteem. Yeah, and I guess the, the reason we asked the question about how bought into Arthur Blank is, I guess, is that... <clears throat> At the time that the the link up was became was was, was announced here, um, it seemed very clear, or, or it was certainly portrayed that this was a brainchild or a, a baby of the likes of Darren Eels and and Carlos Bocanegra. They were very much at the the front and the center of the announcements and everything. And obviously, Atlanta have gone through a pretty a pretty torrid last couple of seasons. It's probably fair to say, culminating obviously with Gabriel Hensa um, being being dismissed not that long ago and. You know, I had a wee look online at the time and it was getting clear at that point that I think that Darren Eels and Bocanegra were becoming targets, I guess, of the Atlanta support for their general, you know, management of the club. And I guess the question for me would be if, if the new managerial appointment of uh, Gonzalo Pineda doesn't work out, is there a risk that the likes of Eels and Bocanegra's roles within the Atlanta organization could also be put at risk? And if that's the case, does that lead to the potential that the link up between the clubs is kind of maybe put under threat because new people coming in might not like, like the look of this? Uh, that, that's a good question. It, it's a good thought. I don't think Darren Hill's job is in jeopardy. Um, if the team doesn't make the playoffs this year, that, which will be the second consecutive season, that it hadn't qualified for the, for the postseason, Carlos Bocanegra's job might be in jeopardy. Although Arthur Blank is, is pretty patient with front office people, particularly like with the Atlanta Falcons for his other team that he owns in the NFL. Um, so I would still be surprised, even if Atlanta United doesn't make the playoffs, if either's were to, to lose their job or anything. I think Darren's job is fairly safe. So just uh, in terms of Atlanta then, what's the general view or the perception about what they think they're going to get out of this arrangement? Uh, some best practices is something that they, they hope to get uh, from Aberdeen and Dave Cormack. Uh, Dave, Mr. Cormack, I should call him. I don't know him personally. I spoke to him on the phone one time. Um, is an Atlanta United season ticket holder for those who don't know. Um, lives has a house in Atlanta. I think a lot of it is just kind of best practices and learning from each other because Atlanta United is still only they're in their fifth season, I think now overall. Uh, they're you know young in in football terms. Um, so I think they're trying to learn some things from Aberdeen and what it's doing as it's kind of uh, re, not reinventing itself, but kind of polishing itself. Is that, would that be a good word? I know there's a stadium, new stadium coming and new training ground opened 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. We are we're hoping to embark on a new era. You're right, we've finally got training facilities. We have planning permission for stadium. We're rebuilding the team, the squad with the manager. So, yeah, you're right, actually. We are hopefully entering a, a more prosperous period. And if Aberdeen is prosperous, Atlanta United, I'm sure, would love to learn you know, some things that it's done uh, to kind of try to be up there and break up the, the big two at the top of the premiership um, and, and get into Europa competitions. Um, because Atlanta United right now is struggling. And so I would think that any information it can get from any of its partners would be appreciated. From the Aberdeen side, with the exception of the investment we've seen in the club itself, the, the hard cash that's been invested in the club, it's, to most fans here, it, it's kind of pretty difficult to see right now what exactly we are benefiting from in relation to the partnership. And the murkiest area um, so far has definitely been in relation to Ronald Hernandez. And, you know, the signing of Hernandez for Aberdeen in January 2020 was a, an exceptionally left-field signing for our then-manager, Derek McInnes, to make. It's a young Venezuelan coming from the Norwegian League, um, being signed for a substantial transfer fee. Aberdeen have not really paid transfer fees for players for a number of years. I think we paid over 850000 for him. He was put on a four-and-a-half-year deal, which is also a, an exceptional deal for Aberdeen to put on. It's In, in every respect... It's basically the complete opposite move that Aberdeen would tend to make at the time. Interestingly, um, within a couple of days after the transfer goes through, Aberdeen receive a loan of a million pounds from a related party as they're designated in the, in the accounts, which were then converted into shares in the club. Dave Cormack has, has stated that he was the one who made the loan to the club and will take Dave on his word. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of Aberdeen fans are, are perhaps disinclined to believe that that's the full story. From from your perspective, Doug, was Hernandez always envisaged to be an Atlanta United player? He ticks a lot of the boxes Atlanta United would look at, you know, a South American profile, et cetera, et cetera. And were Aberdeen being perhaps used as a pathway to secure his services out with the US transfer window at the time and, and while Atlanta waited to free up a, a spot in their squad? Or is that just a really deeply cynical Scottish view to take on things? <laughs> I think it's a deeply cynical Scottish take on things. Uh, if if all that were true, then Hernandez would be, I think, a consistent starter for Atlanta United, yeah. and he's not. Um, they wouldn't have gone and got uh, Andrew Gutman uh, from Cincinnati and put him on loan. Uh, they they kind of view him as a, as a potential starter. Also, they I don't think they would have kept starting Brooks Lennon. I think that Hernandez would have gotten every opportunity to win the starting job and he, he can't beat Brooks Lennon. I don't think they would have gone through all that trouble for a bench player, uh, which is basically what Hernandez is. When he got to Scotland, he said that, you know, COVID uh, really kind of affected his family back home. There was all the unrest in Venezuela with governmental actions. And, you know, there's another Venezuelan on Atlanta United who was worried about his family in Venezuela. So I can't imagine all the pressure and everything that Hernandez was going through. Uh, in addition to, as you said, being a very unique signing by the club, trying to get used to that, wrapping his head around that new country, new club, new manager, new teammate, COVID. There are a lot of guys from South America on Atlanta United who struggled badly last year for a lot of those same reasons. But I don't think the view was ever that Hernandez was going to be in Atlanta United player through 
the financial transactions or financial acumen of, of Aberdeen. I don't, I don't think that was it. Okay. I, I, I guess just while we're on Hernandez, how, how is he doing, generally speaking, since he's moved? He, he doesn't play a lot. Um, Brooks Lennon is the starter. Hernandez came in for like two games, two or three games when Brooks Lynn got hurt. And he did okay, scored a goal, but defensively he's had some struggles. Uh, offensively, he's had some struggles. I would really be stunned if he's uh, considered a permanent transfer um, next year. He occupies an international slot in Atlanta United's roster. And in Major League Soccer, you only get a handful of those for each team. Yeah. So that they're pretty valuable. So you don't want to use them on a bench player, which is what Hernandez is right now. Um, so I'll be stunned if he's still with the team next year. Nah, so if you, were, if you were a betting man, Doug, Hernandez is back at Aberdeen in January. Uh, yeah, or not with Atlanta United. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if Aberdeen will try to sell them or loan them to somebody else to get them off their book, uh, but not with Atlanta United. Yeah, so uh, my next question, I'm not quite ready to drop the cynicism yet, so here we go. <laughs> I was just wondering, uh, with regards to Jack Gurr, uh, sort of murmurings around Aberdeen that maybe we did that it's a bit of a favour to Atlanta so that they could free up a, a spot in the squad. Just wondered if you had any thoughts on that or if it was a genuine case of the guy was out of contract and we've given him a chance. Yeah, now he, he had signed a really, or Atlanta United had agreed to a really odd contract with him. Um, I don't even remember what the phrasing of it was, but basically it was one where he was with the first team but could be dropped at any point, um, which is unusual in Major League Soccer. Uh, usually you, you sign the contract and the player has to stay with the club for the year. Even if he's dropped, there's a financial hit to the club. And so it makes no sense to drop a player. But his, his was a different type of contract in Major League Soccer, which kind of makes up rules as it goes along a little bit, it feels like sometimes. And he was another right back. And you already had Brooks Lennon. You already had Ronald Hernandez. You already had a really good young kid for Atlanta United, too. It wasn't clear where he was going to play. So I think Atlanta United just decided, let's give him a chance to go somewhere. Stephen Glass knew of him from his time at Atlanta United, too, and Atlanta United. And so it kind of worked out, I think, for all three parties. Okay. No, that's interesting to to get that side of it um, as well. So... I was just wondering if you, if you think we can expect to see maybe some more of these types of moves, given that both the UK and the US have quite strict immigration laws, uh, might put a little bit of a limit on the exchange of players. But I'm just wondering if you still think within the, the difficult parameters both countries are working in, if you still expect player exchanges. Yeah, it really stinks what's going on right now, because I fully expected that we would see some more trial or trialists coming up. Uh, from Atlanta or Atlanta United to, to Aberdeen and, and vice versa. Um, and then all this happened with COVID and it's just become incredibly difficult to, to enable that. Um, so I'm hoping next year, if you know vaccinations can increase and, and travel restrictions can, there can be some sort of standards uh, between countries and things that we will see more of this because I think it would be cool for, for both teams and the players to get exposed to these different environments because, you know, football in Scotland is, is the, the bit I've get, gotten to watch over the years seems fantastic. Uh, and, and it's tough and it's fun. And that would be great for, for some of the young guys at Atlanta, Atlanta United too, to go and get some experience there. So I'm hoping to see it. it it's just a shame that uh, among the many shames 
but it hasn't been able to happen because of COVID. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of the things as well. That we've got a young left back, uh, Jack McKenzie, who's kind of broken into the team in the last, well, since the start of this season. He, he, he came in towards the back end of last season, but he's, he's been an ever-present effectively this season. And there was definitely a lot of talk that Jack had been earmarked actually to go to Atlanta last last season. Um, I, I presume on a loan deal. I don't know if it's to go to the Atlanta United or to go to Atlanta too, but that was something that was certainly mooted. And it does seem like it's definitely something that's going to be on the horizon, I think, going forward. Because Atlanta has a, a really good left back right now named George Bello. Yeah. He played for the U.S. in the Gold Cup, and he's with the U.S. now for the World Cup qualifiers. And I know that there have been there has been interest in him from teams in Europe. It wouldn't surprise me if he's not told in the January transfer window, which would open a potential starting, a starting spot for your player uh, to perhaps come in and compete, for example. You're not getting Jack McKenzie now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hands off. Well, what, what kind of what kind of player is he? Left back, um, pretty pretty well built for a left back. He's, I mean, Jack McKenzie's he's a little bit older than some of the other lads. I think he's about twenty one. I think he's taken a bit of time to get himself into the, the team, but very very good defensively. Um, seems to have a good engine about him. Gets up and down the line really well. Maybe a bit of a question mark about how well he does when he gets into the opposition half and into gotcha. the final third. Gotcha. But as a defender, he looks he looks really good. We're we're very blessed at the moment. We've got two young fullbacks on either side who've come through the youth setup and who are both just lighting it up as far as that goes at the moment. So we're, we're very fortunate as far as that's concerned. But he's more of a true fullback than a wingback. George uh, Bell is probably more of a wingback than a fullback right now is why. I see McKenzie really as a left back. I could see him also playing on the left-hand side of a three uh, at the back as well. He's got that kind of stature about him, I think. Um, but yeah, very, very solid. Signs are very good for him. So while we're on the topic of you know to the player side and the the transfers, I think it's it was stated one of the aims of the link up was that both sides would hope to benefit from the scouting networks and you you touched on that earlier. I was just wondering if you'd had any indication how this works in practice, and by that I mean inevitably there's a situation where Atlanta and Aberdeen like a player because they've shared their data and the scouting. Who who gets first call is basically what I'm asking. Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't know. Um, you know, MLS rules are are Byzantine and difficult to to understand. So I guess it was whoever can do the signing the easiest, uh, whoever needs the player the most, or whoever called dibs. You know, who found them first uh, would probably get first right. Yeah, no, I think that's that's interesting because, or certainly my opinion is, it, it kind of looks like Atlanta are the the dominant partner in this relationship but it maybe it might just come down to the mechanics of who can sign a player so he stays within the partnership and whether that means we get a bit of use out of him and then there's the possibility to transfer him to Atlanta or vice versa maybe that yeah maybe they'll just take a pragmatic approach and it'll be the mechanics of who can do the deal to secure the player rather than lose him yeah that makes good sense I guess I don't know how many people how many Atlanta United fans will end up listening to this podcast but all I can do is apologize on behalf of our scouting network for sending you Jake Mulraney. <laughs> and in all fairness, actually, Jake has been a, a good player for Atlanta United. Um, he puts in a really good cross for Atlanta United. He, he beats people uh, off the dribble, which uh, Atlanta United at one point didn't really have a lot of players who could do that. Uh, defensively, he, you know, he needs some improvement. Right now he's hurt. Um, and when he comes back, they've already – They've got Ezequiel Barco back, and they just bought a, a Brazilian, Luis Araujo, uh, who's playing on the right wing. So Jake is going to end up being a, um, 
a bench player, more than likely. But he, he was a pretty productive player for Atlanta United for a while. But I know that he's not well-liked in Scotland for his lack of production. Yeah, I think that's a very polite way of putting it, I think. So <laughs> I guess um, on, the, on the management side of things, obviously Stephen Glass came into Aberdeen early this year and now he'd been in charge of the Atlanta United 2 side and he'd had a spell in charge of the Atlanta first team on an interim basis as well after Frank De Boer was uh, unceremoniously kicked out the door as well. Do you think that Aberdeen were maybe encouraged to to make a move for Glass by Atlanta United to give him that experience of being a manager in his own right? I think they probably gave him a good recommendation. Um, I think that Dave Cormack, uh, I don't know how many of Atlanta United games he saw last year, uh, was probably, well, I would assume, impressed by Stephen Glass and how he handled himself in a very difficult circumstance coming in as an interim manager of Atlanta United after the firing of, of a manager and taking over a team that looked demoralized and disinterested and, and still had them you know, within a shot of a playoff berth, uh, even going into the last week of games. Uh, he held himself with or he, he um, acted with great character with the media, uh, with the players. The players all loved him uh, and said so over and over again. So I think all that contributed. I assume Darren Eels probably, you know, gave him a, a voice of recommendation or letter of recommendation, whatever phrase you want to use, to Mr. Cormack. And still, you know, I, I don't blame Aberdeen supporters for being a little curious about it. Uh, I don't know who else was interviewed for the position. <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, because I, I kept looking and I never saw anything. But anyway, he seems to be doing okay so far. Yeah. It's early days yet. Um, but yeah, it's an encouraging, encouraging start. So, specifically on the appointment of Stephen Glass by Aberdeen, what was the perception of the move in, in Atlanta and how that came about? So, were they cynical around the relationship or were they surprised even that Atlanta didn't give him a, a chance to manage the team longer? No, I mean, it was it was clear he wasn't going to be named manager. I mean, they Atlanta United said that when DeBoer was let go, that they were looking for another manager. Stephen Glass was going to be the interim manager only. Um, I don't blame Glass for maybe being a bit put out by that, considering he did do a, a pretty good job, uh, all things considered. Um, but I, I, you know, there was probably some cynicism that Atlanta United pushed Stephen Glass to Aberdeen, but I think most people were happy for for Stephen based upon just how he carried himself with Atlanta United 2 and Atlanta United. Yeah, no, that, because my next question was going to be, what was the general view of how Stephen Glass did in his role? But I think you basically covered that, that he did a good job of the circumstances and was well-liked by, by players, which is always, yeah. I think, a good, a good sign of a good manager. And his record with Atlanta United 2 wasn't good, but in his defense, he rarely had the same group of players every week. They were coming and going to the first team constantly um and so he was having to, to turn over the roster pretty much every game that's impossible to to win with that job for for Atlanta United 2 was just about player development and not really about the result um and he did a good job with the player development with Atlanta United 2 yeah and I think that's that's a valid point it doesn't really matter how good the manager is and to an extent how good the players are if you don't have a consistent group of players to work with it's really difficult when everyone's relearning who they are and what position and what their teammates do. So, yeah, that's quite a good insight, actually, because I'll be honest, personally, I tend to just focus on the results because that's obviously what I can see from this side. Right. You can you, you know, go on Google and you can see the results. But it's interesting to know that that's not necessarily 
the be-all and end-all of that role. It's about transitioning players from Atlanta to into the first team. And there's been several players, they're called homegrowns here in Major League Soccer, who, were, uh, who played for Stephen Glass, who are now uh, signed to Atlanta United. And some of that is because of his work with those players. And I guess on that same topic then, Doug, if, if Stephen Glass is a roaring success here for Aberdeen, do you think it's likely that Atlanta have almost got like a first option in place for him to return to Atlanta? Yeah, I could see why that would be a thought, but I don't, I don't know. Gonzalo Pineda has been the exception to Atlanta United's hires for managers. They like to shoot pretty, pretty big. And I think that Stephen Glass uh, probably might be also thinking, well, heck, if I wanted Aberdeen, there's been another famous manager who left Aberdeen and went to a pretty good club in England and did pretty well. He might have some pretty high sights set on something, you know, bigger in Europe than Atlanta United in Major League Soccer. Yeah, that's an interesting take and one that I hadn't really considered. We always sort of assume that there's this relationship in the background and that he's here because of where he was. And that's ultimately, it was a trial period effectively. And if he does well, he'll go back. But I never actually considered that Stephen Glass might see Aberdeen as the opportunity for a bigger stepping stone, you know, that his next career move might not be the MLS. It might be something bigger and better in his opinion. So, yeah, that's actually true. We're kind of thinking Atlanta have a hold over him, but it might be Stephen Glass that decides that doesn't work for me. Thanks for the offer, guys. I've got something else. So, well, I mean, I suppose hopefully in a year or two, maybe we are having this conversation again because he's done well, which <laughs> uh, if, he, if he's going, we'd be disappointed. But if he's done well, that's the most important thing. I hope so. I mean, he is a, a really good guy. And I know that that Mr. Cormack is really trying to to take Aberdeen into another, you know, um, chapter, a more positive chapter. Um, and so I hope it happens for for the supporters and and for y'all and the players and Stephen Glass and, and the community. Uh, yeah, well, we would echo that. We certainly hope it will happen as well. So, in terms of uh, maybe the more the the commercial side, do you know if there is there any sort of measurement around the retail or the commercial side as in at Atlanta trying to grow their share over here and is there any sort of representation of Aberdeen in the club shop for example in Atlanta can you get a shirt can you get merchandise because certainly we don't get anything here nope there's nothing here and that's and that is one of the odder things about this to me is I assume there would be something you know a, even a scarf something as simple as a scarf um there might be but I have not seen anything yeah, that because like I say, there's nothing here, and we we all kind of assumed. Now, obviously, some of the relationship hasn't panned out with COVID for obvious reasons. You can't transfer the players to maybe the way we would have wanted to, but you can put some shirts in a container and ship them over <laughs> and have them available for sale. And yeah, we we kind of assumed that we would have access to these types of things, and you know, there's a bit of interest. And we buy a couple of things. Atlanta fans buy a couple of things. Everyone yeah. wins. The brands start to spread out. So it's, a, it's an odd, it is an odd situation to be in that we have a relationship, but no actual sort of tangible signs of that. Who makes uh, Aberdeen's kit? Who's the, who's the provider? Uh, Adidas at the moment. Adidas, yeah. Okay. Adidas is Atlanta United also. It's, it's Major League Soccer's. I would assume that at some point, Atlanta United and Aberdeen and Adidas will kind of get together. I know that COVID is, has made things very, very difficult in terms of production and planning. Uh, so for all I know, they could have started on this last year or something for next year, some sort of warm-up top that could be shared. You know, that, that would be kind of cool. I don't know if they have, but it wouldn't surprise me if we, weren't, if we were to see something like this for next season. 
I was kind of surprised that we haven't seen like a, I mean, I'm not complaining because Aberdeen's away kit this season is an absolute beauty, but I'm, I'm surprised we didn't see us with, with an away kit, which kind of mirrored almost the Atlanta United home, you know, the black with the red pinstripes. That would work quite well for Aberdeen in our, in our colour scheme anyway. I was kind of surprised we never saw something like that. Maybe that'll come um, at some point. Adidas, listen to this podcast and fix this. That's what I would say. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take my cut out of that as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> I need to look up Aberdeen's uh, away kit now. I haven't seen it yet. All I've seen is the home kit. You won't be disappointed, Doug. You, you won't be disappointed. Okay. <laughs> I'll have to go look it up. You mentioned now that there is now a market like uh, you can watch Scottish football on television now with ESPN. So I just wondering if you think amongst Atlanta United support, if there is a market for them to want to watch Aberdeen games on a regular basis. Because again, I'd kind of assumed there would be some mechanism for us in Aberdeen to watch Atlanta games, whether that's streamed for free or, you know, if there are rights issues, it's a pay-per-view type thing. But again, never seen anything about that. Uh, I think it's ESPN Plus. Uh, it's either ESPN Plus or CBS Sports Plus that is carrying uh, Scottish games now. And I think this is the first year in a long time that we've been able to see it. Um, within Atlanta, there are certain bars that carry uh, some some games. Um, like a few years ago, uh, I went and did a story on uh, Celtic and Rangers, their supporters at this one bar called Fado's in Atlanta. Um, I, I don't know if people are watching the games. I haven't seen any ratings or anything. Um, I do know that whenever Aberdeen Club tweets stuff out about the lineups or the result or whatever, I'll retweet it because I know the partnership between the two. And that gets retweeted from Atlanta United supporters for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I, I kind of expected, or maybe, and maybe this will come as well, but I, I want, and it's probably because of rights issues and all that kind of good stuff, but I kind of assumed, you know, there's a, a membership scheme here um, for Aberdeen called DNA. So you pay a kind of monthly fee, that money goes to the footballing operation, you get certain benefits from it. I kind of expected maybe off the back of that, we might get, you know, streamed access maybe not every every game but maybe just a certain number of games a season and maybe something would be done reciprocally with um you know atlanta season ticket holders that they might get access or something but there doesn't seem to have been anything like that to try and at least you know even try and forge some sort of link between the support you know um so it would be interesting to see if that does develop going forward i know there'll probably be loads of issues about tv deals and commercial rights that probably means that that's a very difficult thing to do but um it'd be interesting to see if they if they if they moved on that just, to, just the away to, kit does look sharp. I just saw it. Like that one, yeah, it's good. Yeah, <laughs> and how many times do you get told you like Jason Sudeikis? Um, <laughs> he's definitely talking to you guys. You know what? <laughs> I've had it a few times actually, um, which is really funny. Um, I don't think I look that much at the moment because I've put a bit of weight on to, through COVID. But um, thank you. I, I'll take it as a compliment. I'll take that one. Yeah, no, it's meant as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> I just wondered how often you hear Ted Lasso, um, if people call you that. I get it occasionally, not not as often okay. anymore. Um, I think the uh, I think the lines under my eyes, having two kids <laughs> under the age of four is causing that, but I'll keep that in. This needs there to stay go. in. Um, so, so just to finish up, I guess, then, Doug, because we've, we've taken up way too much of your time already. This oh, it's happening. good. It's all good. So all in all, we're approaching the two-year mark on the relationship. I mean, how do you think it can be judged so far certainly on the atlanta side of the deal we're not that sure about it we got john galkin and jack gurr and that didn't work out too well for us i thought john, john galkin played okay for y'all did, did you do you disagree with that disagree a hard disagree i was like okay um that's fine um I, I i don't think it can be graded right now 
I, I think um, I think you can see it as some measure of disappointment because there hasn't been more of a partnership. There hasn't been a lot more players coming and going. But then you also have to keep in mind COVID, which has affected everything. So I think we need to give it another two years, get out of this COVID stuff and, and see what happens. And then I think we can get a clear idea of if it's, if it's worked for both parties. I think right now it's just too soon to tell. Yeah, that's, I think that's absolutely fair. We're although we're two years in, we're not we're not really, are we? We almost have to park that and kind of take it as now is the starting point when hopefully the it's possible to maybe move players around a little bit easier than it has been, and some of these issues we've discussed might start to get resolved, and we might start to see a bit better representation of Aberdeen in Atlanta and Atlanta and Aberdeen. I hope so. I would love to. Um... Yeah, I thought about this for a while, but then COVID hit, coming to Aberdeen and just kind of writing about the city and, and the club and the partnership with Atlanta United, but there needs to be something that's happened to peg it. And right now there just hasn't been, you know, a peg of a, of a player succeeding either from one place or the other to tie it to. Um, but hopefully that will happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely. Doug, listen, if you do make your way over to Aberdeen, give us a shout. We'll, we'll make sure you're looked after here. Um, and hopefully we can get you back on the podcast maybe later in the season as well. We can find out how Gonzalo Pineda's getting on and whether we're, we need to worry about Stephen Glass being taken back to Atlanta again. <laughs> that sounds great, guys. Thank you. Doug Roberson, thanks very much for joining us on the ABZ Football Podcast. Good evening. Thank you. Thank you all. Good luck with everything. So let's take a look at what's been another pretty busy week for the club again. Lewis Ferguson, who somewhat surprisingly remains an Aberdeen player after the transfer window closed, he picked up his maiden Scotland cap, coming on as a late substitute in our 2-0 defeat in Copenhagen. So that's another milestone in the promising career of Lewis Ferguson, and one that should hopefully add another couple of quid to the asking price when Lewis eventually does depart. It was also a huge week for the women's team. Firstly, the Dons made their second summer acquisition with the signing of forward Louise Brown. Now, this signing was teased by M. Hunter in our interview with Emma in episode 6. Louise has been on trial with the club and played in a couple of games through the SWPFL Cup. Is impressed enough, obviously, to be handed a contract, so we wish Louise all the very best of luck in her new career with the Dons. And secondly, the club also announced the appointment of Gavin Beath as co-manager to Emma Hunter. Beath signs from Dundee United, having spent approximately six years in charge of the Arabs during a period of time which he led them into the SWPL2. And finally, the Dons women got their SWPL1 campaign up and running with a visit of Celtic to the Balmoral Stadium. Now, the Dons suffered a major blow poor kickoff with skipper Kelly Forrest and last season's top scorer Bailey Hutchison both missing out. And the Dons also started the game with no subkeeper on the bench as Anna Blanchard also dropped out. Summer signing Donna Patterson did, however, make her league debut for the Dons. Still a little bit early for new signing Louise Brown to make the squad, but hopefully she'll get up and running shortly. And the Dons gave a good account themselves against the fully professional Celtic side who finished runners-up to Glasgow City in last season's league campaign. Although the Dons finally succumbed to a 4-2 defeat. An own goal from Clark and a goal from Ailey Shore with the, with the goals for the Dons. Now as Emma Hunter touched on in episode 6, it's going to be a season of learning for the squad and for the management as they adapt to top flight football and the mix of playing fully professional sides. But I'm sure that the result and the performance shown on Sunday will stand the team in good stead and will provide a lot of confidence about their ability to compete at this level going forward. And great to see as well a pretty healthy crowd down at the Balmoral Stadium at Cove, just under the 500 mark I think it was I read. So that's an encouraging start to the, to the season as far as the ladies team goes and, and fingers crossed they can grow and develop from there. And notwithstanding this podcast's general aversion to the idea of B or Colt teams competing in the Football League pyramid, 
it would be remiss of us not to touch on the ex excellent results that the Dons B team pulled off against our Broth in the SPFL Trust Trophy second round. An extremely young Dons side eventually coming through on penalty kicks against the team currently sitting fourth in the championship. Michael Ruth's opener on 74 minutes was cancelled out by an injury time equaliser from our Broth. But the Dons then headed on to win the resulting penalty shootout 4-1 with Tom Ritchie the hero in the sticks with two saves. It's a tremendous result for the Young Loons. A team that contained two 16-year-olds, a 17-year-old and the remainder with the exception of Jack Gurr and Tyler McKayta at 18. So the Dons march on to face Hamilton Ackes in the last 16 of the competition. And finally, Lone Watch this week is a pretty quiet one. Kelty Hearts with no fixture this week so no game time for Connor Barron. Mark Gallagher returning from injury for four for Athletic, appearing off the bench for around 18 minutes as four for slipped to a 1-0 defeat at Starks Park in the SPFL Trust Trophy. Kevin Hanratty, Tyler McKayta and Jack Mill were all recalled from their loans at Fort Martin and Breakin respectively to play for the Dons B team against our Broth. And Luke Turner was an unused substitute for Cliftonville as they saw off Glen Turin 1-0 to maintain their 100% record in the Northern Irish Premiership. And so that wraps up part one of this week's show. Please join us after the break where we will take a quick and dirty look at Motherwell ahead of our first trip to Lanarkshire this season on Saturday. And to play us out, we are delighted to be able to bring you an exclusive airing of Iona Fife's latest single, The Cald. The Cald is out on Friday 10th September and you can buy a copy over at ionafife.bandcamp.com. Iona is also performing in Aberdeen this coming Friday, that's the 10th of September again. At the Blue Lamp, a handful of tickets remain on sale. If you head over to at Iona Fife on Twitter, you'll get links there for the tickets. So here is Iona Fife with The Cold. Take me back. 
Today's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you in association with Maritime Developments Limited, project engineering specialist for the global energy sectors. If you've got a vessel fleet that you'd like to put to work but don't have the right tools to do so, MDL might be your answer. Their suite of portable flexly equipment can convert your back deck into a cable mooring line or traditional surf installation solution. Trust MDL's expert engineering team to customise a package for your vessel fleet, addressing all of your operational challenges. To find out more, head over to maritimedevelopments.com. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. So it's back to the grind of the SPFL Premiership for the Dons as we make the trip to Lanarkshire on Saturday to face Graham Alexander's Motherwell. So guys, what are we looking for in our trip to Fir Park? Three points. <laughs> nice and succinct. <laughs> Job done. End of podcast right there. Uh, I'm going to go into total stereotypes myself. You're going to expect what you get from Fir Park pretty much every time we go there. It's going to be a difficult battle of a game uh, but hopefully with uh, some true football manager type uh, type luck Declan Gallagher can grab himself a wee goal at the end one no win job done no games are easy and as much as I'm saying three points is what I want it's not necessarily what I expect I think uh, have we look at Motherwell obviously they they played well I was going to say they played more games than us because they had the League Cup where they won three out of four but actually I guess that probably bounces or more than bounces out actually with the European games that we've had so yeah, they won three out of four, uh, with their defeat being two 0 loss to Ayrjonians. Management wise, it was just Stephen Robinson left January twenty twenty one, so that's kind of old news now with Graham Alexander replacing him. Last season they finished eighth with forty five points, so they're only eleven points behind um, Aberdeen. We finished fourth, so there wasn't really a golfing class based on the table we got last season. They've done a bit like most clubs in Scotland, they've done a bit of wheelie dealing in terms of transfers in and out. I have to confess, I don't really see any notable transfers in just having a wee scan through the list. They seem to be predominantly signed from England, possibly a little bit like we were talking about earlier around Aberdeen. It's that sort of tried and tested known ground for uh, for transfers that they seem to be shopping in or have shopped in this season. In terms of transfers out, Declan Gallagher, pretty high profile but for two reasons. Obviously, he was a first team player for them, played quite well for them, and going to one of the rivals um, with us, Devante Cole, mainly picked him out because he seemed to score a reasonable number of goals for them. So I think anytime you're taking goals out of a team, it's generally one of the harder positions to replace. Alan Campbell, who went for Luton, uh, played really quite well for them last season. Again, first-team player. So they've lost, they've lost a couple of first-team players that have had or made decent contributions to them. And actually, when I just looked at the number of players that left, it looks like something like 25 players left. And that was like 20 players, or you know, 20 Motherwell players and five returning to their parent clubs, uh, loan players. So it feels like a reasonable turnover of players, and they haven't replaced that many. So again, I don't know if it's just Graham Alexander working his way through the squad, trimming it down to what he wants, or if that's budget constraints, etc., that have resulted in that. So if we look forward to current season, uh, Motherwell are fifth. They're only a point behind Aberdeen as we sit in fourth. 
in the, the four games that they've played. They've scored six and conceded five. So they are scoring goals, but they're also shipping goals. That's not too dissimilar to a team we all know and love. Uh, they lost to Hebs. They drew with St Johnston because everyone draws with St Johnston. And then they beat Livingston and they beat Dundee. Uh, and actually, a slight parallel with uh, the women's team, um, the, the Aberdeen ladies, Beat the Motherwell ladies team 1-0 in the SWPL Cup. Come so, on, you Reds. Come on, you Reds, indeed. So overall, players, yeah, probably quite a few decent players have left them. So far, their season is, well, it's basically the same as ours. It's it's okay to date. Um, I can't imagine we will be talking at the end of the season about them being a point behind us, but, but you never know. Sounds very much like us, to be fair. Uh, a team in transition. Stephen Robertson had obviously been at Motherwell for, for quite a period of time as well. Obviously not as long as McInnes was with Aberdeen, but Robinson was one of the more uh, long-term managers, I guess, in the in, in the premiership when he left. So I guess it's natural that Graham Alexander is going to come in and want to to try and stamp his authority over things and make a lot of changes. So from that perspective, it does sound very similar. And I think I had read <clears throat> recently as well, I think that there was a bit of a, a drive from Alexander to try and change the way that Motherwell play and want them to be... I guess a little bit less pragmatic as they could tend to be under under Robinson. So again, sounds very similar to us, and it's even reflected their game as you pointed out. Their their record in the league: four games scored, six conceded, five. Again, looks pretty similar to to a team not too far from us. It'll be interesting. I mean, Motherwell's always a, a a place I think Aberdeen find it quite tough to to go and get a result. Generally speaking, um, I expect it'll be a pretty decent crowd there obviously there should be a big away support we'll have the the whole that stand back in the goal which is always good uh, and it'll be a Saturday three o'clock kickoff for the first time in a little while this season as well for us so that that always helps I think so it's going to be interesting to see what sort of approach Stephen Glass decides to take on this one normally generally speaking for a park in the last few years it's been a good pitch to play on it's not been that you know um, beach that it was a few years ago so that should potentially help in in, in, in putting a, a good game of football out there Interested to see what we do in terms of our arrivals that came in uh, just towards the back end of the transfer window. What I will say before we move on to uh, ourselves as well is that Tony Watt has been my star man in my fantasy team. So uh, that I just, if I had to guess, I would guess most of those six goals have come from him. <laughs> so he is a he's 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 a danger he's a dangerous player. I mean, you know, last time before Motherwell that we ever heard of him was when he was talking about how Scottish rules beneath him. But you know. <laughs> obviously had to come back with his tail between his legs uh, but he seems to have kind of settled at Motherwell after a long time of basically being at a club, a new club every six months and you know he's, he's a tricky you know fast you know good footballer uh, a test for our defence uh, who so far have not looked up to much when confronted with that kind of player so uh, yeah going to be a test for us for sure Do we expect to see debuts for the likes of David Bates? Yes I don't know if high profile is the right way to phrase it, but that's not a squad filler signing, in my opinion. I, I think we have signed him with a view to playing him, so I am fairly confident he is going to play. Now, whether that's in replace or you know in place of someone else, or we rejig things in order to accommodate him with the guys that have been playing in defence, but I, I expect to see him play. My suspicion, uh, if I'm a betting man right now, is that we will play a three at the back against uh, Motherwell. With, uh, David Bates probably going on the right side, Gallagher in the middle, and McCrory on the left side. Do you think that the three at the back might be the way we go full stop for the rest of the season? It feels like there are three players that are here to be first-team players, if you know what I mean. 
And it sounds like Glass is really, you know, being quite um, stubborn and adamant about Ross McCrory as a centre-back, you know, that being his kind of little project. I don't think we're going to see McCrory move into the midfield anytime soon. So, and like Steele said, I think Bates is here to be a first-team player. I suspect Gallagher is probably one of the higher earners in the squad. So, yeah, I think that's probably going to be the way it's going to be. It's going to be quite interesting, I think, now for us as we as we go ahead, try to pick a team. Um, we are, obviously, we're recording this now after the transfer window has, has closed. So we have a good idea of what our squad looks like. And it's fair to say it is fucking massive now for a team who are only playing in two competitions for the rest of the season. Um, there's a lot of what you would, I guess, consider fat in that squad now. I'm really intrigued to see where we go. I presume we're going to land on a, a first 11 at some point, um, despite the fact that I think Stephen Glass has shown a willingness to kind of adapt to teams he's going to play against and all that kind of good stuff. But I do think we're going to naturally start to see a, a preferred 11 start to, to, to come to the fore. If you had to pick a lineup right now for that game next week, what would you go with? I'll take the easy one, Joe Lewis. Ah, sticking sticking with Joe Lewis, eh? Yeah. So we reckon Lewis, and we reckon three at the back. I think I I agree. I think it'll be a three as well. Even if it's just because he's now got all these guys, and he's got to shoehorn them in. I, I think that's why we will play. I don't know if it's purely because that's how he thinks. You know that that's our best bet against Motherwell. I just think we've got these players. They've signed them to play them. That's the way to get them in. And then with the three, you're presuming it's going to be Jack McKenzie, Calvin Ramsey as your wing-backs. I think they're probably dead search right now. I can't imagine why you wouldn't unless they were unavailable. Which then makes it really interesting to try and figure out what we do in the centre of the park, given the, the sheer number of central materials that we currently have in the books. We have, we have quite a lot of them, and on the face of it, they all seem to be kind of similar. The last couple of games, I feel like they're maybe almost tripping over each other. It's not like we've got a group of midfielders with distinct roles and you can say, well, that's fine, you take those two, you take those two, and they complement each other. It does feel like we're picking from a pool and they're all kind of looking at each other in the pitch to say, well, I wanted to do that bit, but you're doing it. So, yeah, I actually don't know what he's going to do because we, I think we all assumed Ferguson wasn't going to be here. So that would have taken some of the heat out of the situation because you'd be a man down, but you probably wanted to be because we've got so many. Well, Brown's going to be a starter, isn't he? I'm trying to think of it from like the sense of, as the manager, who are you looking at as you're nailed on starters? And Scott Brown's one. Not necessarily all the time, but I think you know more often than not, he will be. After the way we've played hardball, Lewis Ferguson's got to be in there. I'm kind of talking about this, like, Matty Longstaff's coming, you know, a big, high-profile name, and I'm assuming that Newcastle are pretty, pretty desperate to see him playing regular football that's the whole point of this transfer on their end I'm, yeah. yeah I'm also fairly certain he had offers and I'm guessing what would have enticed him to Aberdeen would have been the prospect of playing more often than not so feels like that's that's three covered off straight away doesn't it certainly feels that way which then leaves you try to shoehorn you know the likes of likes of Ojo the likes of Jet likes of Samuels Watkins Hedges if he's available Hedge is probably not available right now, I don't think, but more long-term. How you get Ramirez, Jet. You know, it suddenly becomes like, having gone from a few weeks ago being like, God, we're way, we're really, really light. It feels like we've got way too many players now. And it, uh, I think this, the, the, the club and I think Glass will probably be quite disappointed, I'd imagine, that some of the 
fringe players didn't get shipped off on transfer deadline day. Yeah, you've got McGeeck and Kennedy to factor into that equation. I mean, I can't imagine they're going to get anywhere near the first team, but your point is absolutely valid. There's a couple of guys that, barring a really rank run of injuries, you're just not going to need. It's going to be very interesting to see what sort of lineup we go with. Well, let's uh, let's let's complete the team. So that leaves us two options uh, otherwise. So presumably we'd say Ramirez up front. I'd imagine he is, yeah. So then we've got space for one more. And, you know, who is that? Is that going to be Jet? Is it Ojo? I mean, those are probably the two front runners off the top of my head. I think you would want Watkins in there somewhere, wouldn't you? Marley, Marley Watkins, yeah. I would probably, based on if you're playing that way, I would probably put Samuels in there because I'd like to see a bit of pace up alongside the Ramirez. It's really difficult. It's, I'm, I'm just glad it's not me that's having to make this decision. Yeah, it, it kind of, yeah, it sort of smacks of a somewhat unbalanced squad, doesn't it? Is it unbalanced or is it just we've got just too many? We're bloated in some areas and maybe a touch light in others. I don't think it's unbalanced as in they're all predominantly, you know, one foot or the other or we're going to look silly. We're going to only attack down one side of the pitch. But I think we've... We've probably got the right numbers in the squad, just not in the right positions. I'm just thinking in terms of outright creativity, though, if I look at that, if I picture that 11 in my head, Ramsey, that's about it. Well, that was the problem against Ross County. It felt to me that our, it's certainly the second half. First half, I thought Samuels did really well, but the second half, it felt to me that the only outlet we really had creatively was was probably Callum Ramsey. Jet, when he came on, did pretty well as far as that went, but we all know what what Jets like you're you, we're gonna get either you know Maradona or we're gonna get Monacana yes well done I wonder in a way as well if, if Lewis Ferguson staying is actually going to cause a bigger dilemma because I, I kind of suspect that what might have happened is that Bates would come in Ferguson would go McCrory would get pushed up into the midfield alongside Brown and it would be Bates and Gallagher would be our center halves but now, you're right, Gav, I think that there's there's no spot for McCrory right now in the midfield area. I think Glass will want to stick by this idea that McCrory's a centre-half. It's either he decides to go that way, and I think I think a three suits us. I, I, I do think a three suits us. We spoke about Martin last week. With the way we're trying to play with high full-backs, we're always going to be susceptible to balls with the top and the spaces they leave behind. And in that instance, having a three at the back would, would help because at least you can shuffle one guy across either side to cut off those balls and still be left with two in the in the, in the centre of the park. So three to me makes sense. It's what happens in front of that. I've just got literally no idea because you, you want to still have a, I presume we want to try and have a base in the midfield to try and control things. But that then stifles your ability to potentially create mm-hmm. further up up the park. It's going to be very interesting to try, and, to try and solve this dilemma. I can see why the three at the back with the two fullbacks makes perfect sense. But yeah, like you say, it's just, it leaves you very little in the way of wiggle room. Uh, with the rest of our team and it feels to me like we've got three pretty undroppable midfielders as well to factor into that it's going to be interesting let's put it that way um, and with the way that both teams are playing at the moment it could easily be a repeat of that infamous Motherwell 5 Aberdeen 6 scoreline from a few seasons back now before we wrap up on Motherwell I think we would all just want to recognise the amazing work that Motherwell have actually done with a lot of their community initiatives in the last 12-18 months for a club the size that Motherwell are, the work they do in their community is absolutely second to none and deserves all the plaudits in the world. And I know that the guys at the AFC Community Trust, you know, also look very closely at what Motherwell are up to and are, are, are doing very similar things that, that maybe doesn't get published as publicized as well. But yeah, hats off to Motherwell on that side of things. Excellent work. Keep it up, chaps. Definitely. Absolutely. 
And so that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast player of choice. Join us next week where we'll review our SPFL Premiership match at Motherwell. And we'll look ahead to the visit of the Cup double winner, St. Johnston, for what is sure to be an enthralling nil-nil draw. We'll then round things off with the latest on our line of big hit interviews as we welcome a man who made a total of 80 appearances for the Dons, finding the net on 10 occasions, including one thunder bastard against Torino during his two seasons here. It's the one, it's the only, Lee Richardson. And we look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. Today's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with our partners, Maritime Developments Limited. MDL are proud supporters of the Light the North Trail for clan cancer support. You can find the MDL Lighthouse Sculpture on the Lido in Peterhead Bay. Designed by Small Stories artist Gabby Reith, the Lighthouse, titled My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, recognises the life-saving work of the RNLI. Use your Light the North app to collect it before the 17th of October and get your entry into MDL's Ocean Explorers competition. You can learn about the trail and how to show your support at likethenorth.co.uk.